I realized after I told you that we were going to be opening up to Amos chapter 5, I didn't tell you what verse, uh, so I could, I could hear like pages flipping. It was verse 14, in case you didn't figure that out. And I will be preaching from Amos, so please do uh, keep, keep your finger in the book there at um, five, chapter 5, verse 14. Um, I'm still relishing in just the, the beauty and the loudness and, and just the, the um, celebration of last week for All Saints. Like, was that not a great Sunday last week? It was so much fun. I loved all the extra, like, instruments just pouring over us from the balcony. And then that evening when we crammed a lot of people in this building, uh, it, it felt like I did a lap through the building and it felt like there were just people eating all over the place. Uh, it was so much fun, so great. Uh, which is why today might feel a little off, right? Um, I think in the church calendar, we should probably start calling this Sunday Whiplash Sunday because we have this beautiful feast, you know, and then this Sunday, we come up against the prophet Amos, and uh, who says some really heavy things to us, and we have this bizarre reading from Paul, and then Jesus is giving us some really stern words. This is a, um, an interesting time in the church calendar, right? So if, if you've been in this tradition for a while, maybe this season you're, you're starting to get a little bit used to it, although it always comes with a surprise, right? But these are bizarre days. These are bizarre readings that we have. Uh, N.T. Wright calls these Sundays Kingdom Sundays because it's, uh, they come after All Saints, in which we celebrate the kingdom of God, and it comes before what we'll celebrate in a couple of weeks, which is Christ the King Sunday. And what these Sundays are doing is where they're sort of, um, they're tapping into the same themes as Advent. Uh, N.T. Wright also calls these Sundays pre-Advent Sundays. Uh, I love Advent. Uh, I know I said this about Ordinary Season like six months ago. I said that that was my favorite season, but I, I'm pretty sure Advent's actually my favorite season. Um, I wish that we could go ahead and just turn the banners purple for now and really lean into these Advent themes. Um, it's just, it's, it's a wonderful time. Um, it is a challenging time, though, because we're reading about themes of, of hell and of judgment and, and darkness, right? And let me just be really clear that Advent is not Christmas time. Uh, Christmas begins on December 25th and then goes for 12 days. It's a wonderful time of feasting. But Advent and these Sundays before it are preparation for that. They, they lead us into the celebration. So we're preparing for the Feast of Christmas. Fleming Rutledge, that great Advent preacher, she says that Advent is no walk in the park. She says it's not for sissies. Which I, I like that. Okay. Not for sissies. Church is not for sissies. Cool. <laughs> But this is a time in which we take an honest account of the darkness that is in our world. We sit with the Old Testament prophets. We look up into the night sky and we say, God, are you, are you here? Are you watching? Are you paying attention to what's happening here? The world seems to be unraveling before our eyes. Where are you, God? Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down and be with us. That we might see you. That you might restore all things. And that brings us to our reading from the prophet Amos. Because he asks a pretty alarming question. Because we, like the prophets of old, are in a tumultuous time. We look at our world and we see nations blowing each other up. We see a city that's sort of unraveling. And maybe even our own households are in conflict, right? And so we also cry for the Lord to come down. But what Amos asks us is, are you sure you want that? Are you sure? Like, do you really want God to come down? I mean, Amos is doing what a, what a good preacher is doing, which is sowing just a little bit of doubt into the congregation, saying, you're, you're taking this for granted that you want the presence of the Lord, but are you sure? Is that actually something that you want 
to see. C.S. Lewis says, I want God, not my idea of God. And what Amos is doing here in this passage is he's, he's challenging the people's idea of God because he thinks they have a wrong idea. And so God, through his prophet Amos, out of his abundant grace for us and out of his love for us, is he's revealing who he actually is to us in these passages. And he's telling us what he loves. And he's inviting us to love the same things that he loves. So may we see God more clearly in this passage. Not our idea of God, not what we've assumed by God, but God himself and his heart. May we see that here in this passage. So I'm not going to be moving through this verse by verse. Uh, Instead, some of these themes kind of emerge and and kind of go back under and then emerge again. And so I'm going to be drawing out, I'm going to be moving through this thematically. I've got kind of three themes I want to pull from this. Um, So like I said, page 719, if you're not there yet in your Bibles, this would be a great time to turn open to that. Amos chapter 5, verse 14. So this portion of Amos's book, the whole book is, is, well, it's directed to a bunch of different tribes, and then Amos goes into the nation of Israel, and now he's speaking, he's sort of honing in on a specific region called Gilgal. Uh, and Gilgal, it's, it's a place that, if you remember, when the, when the Jews enter into the Promised Land, they cross the River Jordan, and then they were there at Gilgal for a little bit, which I'll speak more about that in a minute. But the people there, Gilgal, they were a very religious people. In fact, if you jump down to verse 21, you'll see that the Israelites, the, the Jews here in Gilgal, they were, they were very religious. They celebrated all of the feasts, all of the holy days of the calendar. So to put that in Anglican terms, like this is more than just celebrating Christmas and Easter. Like, like these folks would have also celebrated all of the other ones, you know, the All Saints, Transfiguration, Ascension, Pentecost, Trinity Sunday, all the other feasts they would have been all about. But they also observed all of the solemn assemblies we read. So again, kind of in, in Anglican parlance, you could say that, you know, when you open up to the prayer book to all the listing of the martyrs and all those who've died for the faith, uh, these people would have celebrated all of that stuff, all of those red-letter days. They would have been all about that. But there's more, more to their religious devotion. Down in verse 22, we see that they put their money where their mouth was. They invested. They, they gave of all their burnt offerings, their grain offerings, their peace offerings. They also played all the right songs. If you look at, at that verse later, you'll see that uh, they had played beautiful melodies with expensive instruments like harps and everything. These were a people who were very religious, and beautifully so. They were proud of this. And so for the, jo- for the Jews who either lived in Gilgal or those pilgrims who would roll into Gilgal for worship, they, they thought that they were doing absolutely everything right. It was worth the travels to drive all the way to this beautiful house of worship here in Gilgal. So in this first scene, we see a religious people. We see people who are saying to themselves, This is so beautiful. Surely God is with us. Surely he loves us, right? Oh, yes, we love the day of the Lord. We would welcome the Lord to come. Wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) You can kind of hear them saying. So that's the first scene. Let's move to the second. So what exactly will it look like when the Lord comes and visits? Well, back up in verses 16 and 17, we read of what happens when the Lord walks through the town. We hear of wailing of lament, of mourning. It even says that in the vineyard, that place of joy and elation and celebration, even there, that will be a place of trouble and of mourning. Then down in verse 19, 
He says, it will be just as if you had escaped a lion, but then turn the corner and you meet a bear. That's a pretty terrifying image, right? And just kind of as a little aside, um, I, I encourage you to read Amos sometime this week. And look for all of the ways, all of the, the lion imagery that's in here. It's really interesting. Amos begins by saying, the Lord roars. So what does it mean here for someone to escape a lion? What if that lion is the Lord? I'll, I'll let you wrestle with that. We can talk about it later. But what, what Amos is saying here is that when the day of the Lord comes, this will be a day of darkness, something that we've never encountered before. Well, what about the people's religiosity? What does he say about this? Well, let's jump back down to verse 21. And again, here, look at all of the verbs that are used in this passage. God says, I hate, I despise, I take no delight, I will not accept, I will not look, take away your noise, I will not listen. It's scary to hear this, right? Because here, these people have this, this beautiful, articulate, expensive, attractive religion. But what does God think of it? He's not impressed. In fact, as, as far as like the functions of what religion is supposed to accomplish, this one is an absolute failure. It doesn't draw them near to God. It doesn't transform them. It doesn't shape them. Now, for those of us who call ourselves Anglicans, I, I think the connection can be pretty clear, right? Like this is, it's hard for us to hear this because we love our feasts. We love our calendar. We love our traditions, right? Like, we love these things. Or maybe I'll speak for myself. Like, I love these things. That's why I'm in this tradition. I love receiving the inheritance that we've, that we've um, gotten from our spiritual mothers and fathers, and that we're able to walk in that and celebrate that. I love the rich liturgies, the, the patterns of feasting and then fasting that are a part of our tradition. I also love kind of the, the personal, uh, devotional, uh, embodied forms of prayer, like, like bowing in, at reverent times and crossing ourselves and, and kneeling at appropriate times. You know, I, I love that because it's, it's like I'm praying with my body in these moments. And I don't mean to, to pick on the more traditional or you could say the more Catholic kind of elements of our faith. Because to be honest, I think that there's dangers on the more sort of Protestant reform side of things as well. You know, we can become overly reliant on our traditions, but I was talking to one pastor in a more reformed tradition um, here in the neighborhood who said to me, you know, I, I think our idol is our doctrine. We want to make sure that we have all of the right ideas about God. We want to make sure that we check the right boxes and whatnot. And so that's how we know that we are right before God is because we ascribe to all the right things. We've made the right stances on the right issues and all of this. You know, we can lean on these things to determine whether or not we are right with God. Now, of course, the Bible does call us towards thoughtful, devotional, you know, orderly ways of worshiping Him and uh, proper ways of believing in Him. Jesus says, worship me, or the Father is looking for worshipers who can worship me in spirit and in truth. But the question is, is are you leaning upon tradition? Are you leaning upon your checkboxes? when it comes to your relationship with the Lord? Why, on what basis do you think the Lord loves you? Is it either of those two things? Is it because you come to church every single Sunday? You come to church religiously? Is it because you check all the right doctrinal boxes? So here in this second scene, we see a God who is not pleased with their presumption upon their religiosity. And so what the, where does that leave us? Where does that leave us, brothers and sisters, here in 2023 in South Minneapolis at Restoration Anglican Church. Let's hop back up to verse 14. 
Here, God says, seek good and not evil. And then down the verse right below it, Amos uh, in chapter, uh, I'm sorry, verse 15, hate evil and love good. Do you notice that subtle difference of those two phrases? So the first is seek good and do not seek evil, but then hate evil and love good. You see, what's happening here is a shift of we're talking about actions and behavior on, on the first part, and then down we drop down to the emotions, to the heart, to the passions, to the affections, to the desires that God wants us to have. In other words, he doesn't want us to just be committed to him by our, our, proper, our proper actions, but also in our affections. He wants your heart engaged in this. He wants all of you. He wants your emotional life, not just your intellectual life or, or your obedient life. He wants your heart to be involved in this. But then we can even drill this down to another layer, can't we? Because the good person, that is the person who loves goodness, pursues goodness for those in society as well. And you can't have one without the other. Those who love goodness pursue goodness in society. The Bible calls this justice. In verse 15, right after this verse, or right right after the line of hating evil and loving the good, what does Amos say? He says, establish justice in the gate. That gate in the ancient world is like an ancient courthouse. It's the place where important decisions are made. So the rulers, the authorities, they would sometimes meet there in the gate, and then, you know, if you had a complaint or some kind of conflict with your neighbor, you would, there, you would go to the gate, and they would make a decision, and it would be binding. And so this was, the officials were supposed to establish peace there. They were supposed to eradicate conflict that were there. But the gate also symbolizes, it, it, it's a border, right? Like it symbolizes, you know, there's, there's things outside the gate, and then there's things inside the gate. Those, that's which outside of the gate well, that's the land of unknown. It's the wilderness. It's, it's chaotic. It's untamed. It's, it's violent out there. It's unpredictable out there. But what about inside the gate? Well, inside the gate, well, that's where there's order. There's shelter there. There's peace there. You can catch your breath there and, and sleep with safe, in safety there inside the gates, inside the city. So the gate is a place where evil is resisted, but where justice is established. So when you walk through the gate, you know that you now can live in a just society, in a peaceful society. And so what Amos is saying, what God is saying through Amos here is, look, you are coming into church and you are singing to the God of justice, to the God who, who loves us. But then when you go out to the gate, are you acting as a child of God? Are you, are you pursuing justice there in the places in which God has placed you? At the gate, are you pursuing justice there? You come and you sing about it, but are you pursuing justice in the world around you? That brings us to verse 24. Gosh, one of the most beautiful verses of the Old Testament, right? So famous. This is a key verse of the book of Amos. Let justice roll down like waters. And I love the abundance that's implied by that, this ever-flowing stream. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So roll, the word roll, is an, it's, it's hard for me to say that word. I get kind of tongue-tied. But the word roll uh, is an interesting word in this context. Uh, in the original Hebrew language, the word roll sounds like the name of this, of this village, of Gilgal. It sounds the same in Hebrew. You see, long ago when the Jews crossed the River Jordan and, and stepped into this place, they underwent the ceremony of circumcision there. And do you remember what the Lord told them after that ceremony? He says, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. You are no longer slaves. 
That identity does not form you anymore. You don't have the shame of, of serving in Egypt anymore. I've rolled that away. You're no longer nomads. I've now given you a home. This is yours. And I've given you the law. I've given you a proper way of ordering your lives so that you can now live in a, a community of joy and peace and justice. I've given you dignity. Your reproach has been rolled away, the Lord says. And so now, in Amos's day, it's as if he's saying, you might be in Gilgal, this place of rolling, but the rolling has stopped. It doesn't happen anymore. You might roll into town for the festivals and for the, and for the worship and whatnot, but you're not rolling out justice in the city gates. And so in this third scene, we hear God calling to a people who he loves dearly, saying, please love what I love. Pursue the goodness that, that I love. Pursue justice that I love. So what does this mean for us here today and now? Well, friends, more so than, than the people of this day, our reproach has been rolled away. That's what Jesus accomplishes on the cross for us, on our behalf. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he, he paid for our sin and our shame and our guilt, so that stuff doesn't, doesn't hold to us anymore. It doesn't define us anymore. It has been rolled away, and it no longer has a hold on us anymore. And so we don't have to earn God's favor. We don't have to earn his love. He is, he is if, if, if we swear allegiance to him, if we profess our, our faith in him, then we are received into his household, that we are loved by him and fed by him and nourished by him. He places his Holy Spirit within us. Our shame has been rolled away and it doesn't plague us any longer because he died for us. The payment is done. It's complete. And so now we are his children We've been adopted into his household and, and, and uh, formed by, by him and the things that he loves. And so therefore, may we do that. May we love the things that he loves. May we hate evil, love good, and establish justice. Now I think when it, when it comes to dreaming about these things and allowing your imagination to wonder what justice can look like in your life, I, I don't know about you, but I kind of fall into one of two ditches uh, when it comes to this. You know, on one side, I... You know, just by scrolling through the headlines, it's easy to be overwhelmed by all of the injustice that we see, right? And it's easy to kind of say, I don't even know where to start, so I'm just going to stay in my lane and I'm just not going to worry about it. Kind of this this position of of apathy, right? But then another ditch that we can sometimes fall to is the the opposite side of things, where we see these injustices and and we say, I'm going to do this. Like, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to change the world and, you know, watch out, Satan. Here I come. You know, kind of this kind of attitude, right? Well, these are both ditches that we can fall into. So on one hand, we need to know that we we are not Jesus. We are not the Savior of the world. He has already accomplished that. And he is the king of justice. And there is a day in which he will come back. And all of it will be purged from our midst forever. Every, every aspect of creation will have darkness eradicated from it forever. But then also, he has placed you in a very particular moment in time, a place in this world. He has given you spiritual gifts by the power of his Holy Spirit. He's given you spiritual passions and, and, and things to care about that, that you can only care about through the Holy Spirit. He's given you a spiritual purpose for your life. And so my question is for you this morning is, where is the gate that God has placed you in? What is the location of purpose that God has placed you in? What is the place, where is the place that God is calling you to establish justice in your life? What is the gate in your life? Maybe it's the school teacher's classroom. That's a place where some order can sometimes be needed, right? 
Maybe it's the social worker's office. Maybe it's the engineer's drafting table. Maybe it's the kitchen table of a stay-at-home parent. Maybe it's a barista's cash register, a nurse's hospital bed. Where is your gate? Where is the place that God has placed you? And how might you be called to establish justice in that context to the glory of God? And for us as a community, especially as we, as we move out of these seasons of just crisis, out of the crisis, and we, as, a, as a community, as, as we now move into a season of hopeful stability and we're able to, to look more around us, like how might God be calling us, restoration, as a household into avenues of justice? How might we find that here in our neighborhood? I invite you to imagine about this, to think about these things, to seek the Lord in prayer about these things. Because this is God's heart. These are the things that he cared about. This is why he's redeemed us and and incorporated us into his household. That we might reflect his will and his love and his purposes to a world around us. So may we be seekers of justice, both together in this house, but also in the various neighborhoods and vocations and households that he's placed you. May we be a people who seek after justice by the power of the Holy Spirit. Please pray with me. Oh, Father in heaven. We come here every week to lift up your name, to sing your praises, to open up your word and to hear from you, to receive from you at the table, Lord. We love you, Lord Christ. I pray that you would continually pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that you would transform our hearts, Lord, to be more into your likeness, to love the things that you love. Lord Jesus, thank you for rolling away the sin of the world, for atoning for all of the sin once and for all upon the cross. So pour out your Holy Spirit upon us afresh, Lord. Give us the heart of Jesus, that we might love what you love and work towards that which pleases you, goodness and righteousness and justice. May your kingdom come and your will be done. Amen.